Uh, are we starting? Is this recording? Are we going? Is this live? Are we live? Shankadanka. I, I need some confirmation. I'm going to try to go through this entire episode just saying the phrase Shankadanka. <laughs> if, if we do that, we need to be able to... It's up to, to you to translate everything I'm saying. <laughs> Shankadanka? Yes. Shankadanka. He, okay. Um, Shankadanka. 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 He is, yes. Shankadanka? This is our new promotion. Shanka, 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 <laughs> this is our new promotion. We're uh, getting ready to roll out t-shirts. <laughs> so we're really pushing our catchphrase. That is not what I said. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> I don't got time for your jibba jabba. <laughs> uh, what I was actually saying was, you're listening to Between the Gutters, the podcast where we talk about the stories between the panels. That's what I said, man. All right, all right. There Come we go. On, man. That was intro. That was our intro. All right. Welcome. This is Outrageous Albert Lamb. And this is Delirious Drew Tan. There we go. We're outrageous and delirious. So maybe I hope even you enjoy demented, that. Deranged. <laughs> if you're still listening, you're still with us, man. Yeah. You've got patience. Yeah, thank you're, you. You're, you're a saint. So. We're going to continue our countdown of the top 25 Marvel comics of all time. Our last episode, uh, we had a little digression talking about the Black Panther movie. So hopefully by now you guys have all had a chance to check out the movie and, and listen to our episode. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, we're going to get back on track with our with our countdown. And we left off in, uh, in our last episode at number 13. So today we're going to cover number 12 and number 11. So, that's pretty good. We're yeah. making it down to the final ten of almost our list. To the top We're almost 10. done with our list. Yeah, getting there. So just uh, as a quick rundown of our criteria to help guide our discussion and also explain how we arrived at our final choices, we had four criteria, and this this is what uh what we had. First of all, is craft. It's is the craft. So that's how sound technically sound the comic is. Yeah. Just how in well, layman's, it's just mm-hmm. is the art pretty? Is the words good? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we read words good. We like <laughs> <laughs> pictures. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Second is originality, and by that we just mean is the comic creative and imaginative? Does it have something meaningful to say? Mm. Third criteria was impact. You know, what sort of lasting influence did the comic have? Did it leave a mark within the Marvel Universe, within the comic Popular culture or... Yeah, within popular culture or just the comic book industry? Yeah. And how do people remember it? Yeah. And the final one is how well does the comic withstand the test of time? So is it something that holds up today outside of the, the context of its original publication? Yeah. Or is it it something that you could see yourself reading again over and over down the line in the future? Yeah. Is it a timeless classic? Yeah. Pretty simple. So, you ready to get into this? Yeah. What is next on our list, Drew? Coming in at 12 on our list is Fantastic Four Unstable Molecules Mm -hmm. by James Sturm and Guy Davis. So, this is a... this is a mini-series that was originally published back in 2003. I want to say that it's probably one of the more obscure titles on our list. Definitely. Uh, it's uh, I, 
I feel like it's worth mentioning that it came out in a period of uh, Marvel Comics history where Marvel Comics was definitely taking a lot more gamble, or or they were definitely gambling more in terms of creative teams that were work on working on their books. This was a period where we yeah. were just seeing them just being just very experimental and just trying out all sorts of different things. So yeah, that was it was the, a, the Bill Jemis and Joe Quesada era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, just as a little bit of context, this was kind of a point after... I, I think it had been a, a few couple of years since Marvel was at their worst, essentially. Yeah. Where they were just kind of... Uh, the late 90s were, yeah. was when they were bankrupt. They yeah. They for Chapter 11 and then... Exactly. Uh... They made Blade and X-Men, a couple of movies that probably saved their company. Yeah, it gave them a little bit of money to keep going, but in terms of the actual comics that they were producing, they were, you know, kind of lost in the woods. And uh, Joe Quesada coming on really kind of changed things for Marvel. And, you know, um, I think that says a lot about this book, uh, just in terms of... um, what we were getting out of that era of Marvel Comics. Um, In regards to its craft, uh, I would say that it's not your typical Marvel comic. Uh, In terms of the art, it's... Well, let me me actually go back a little. Let me talk about the story and the writing a little bit more. Um, It's... At its essence, it is kind of a exaggerated version of the character flaws of the original Fantastic Four. Uh, would that be a fair assessment? Yeah. yeah. So, let's take a step further back even and just talk about uh, the context of the story. So, I mean, obviously everybody knows who the Fantastic Four are, but when we said that this is <coughs> one of the more obscure stories on our list uh part of that is because this was a comic that was produced by basically indie comics creators mm. so mm. our friend justin who was here when we talked about black panther yeah. he probably would have loved this he would have he would have just been like nobody knew but i knew about this before nobody yeah. so <laughs> that makes it special and i'm yeah. gonna ride my special bike with a giant wheel and a tiny wheel exactly i mean it's written by james Sturm. he's a comics creator who is probably known for his own works he doesn't really write any superhero stuff for marvel or dc this was probably the only marvel thing he's ever done Mm. Uh, he's known for books like the golem's mighty swing and uh some others that are i think they're published by uh drawn in quarterly or maybe fantagraphics so uh, unless you're someone who's really into comics, you probably wouldn't have ever heard of him. Yeah. And the art is by Guy Davis, who's a little more mainstream, but he he did a lot of indie work starting up with uh, Baker Street and uh, Caliber Comics. He mm-hmm. did a lot of work for DC's Vertigo line back in the 90s. And there's an art assist by uh, Robert Sikoriak, who drew basically a comic within the comic yeah. of this story. He did Sandman Mystery Theater? Yeah, Guy Davis is known for Sandman Mystery Theater. Yeah. One of my favorite comics. Yeah, and it's a pretty well-regarded work. Uh, yeah. It's he's he's not a he's an artist who's not known for drawing in a stereotypical superhero style where people are really muscular yeah. or idealized versions of people. Uh, the men 
they actually look kind of plain looking or pudgy. Yeah. Some of the women too. I mean, he doesn't draw like bombshells or or mm. anything like that, but they look like real people yeah. and average people sometimes, which works for this story because Unstable Molecules is a Fantastic Four story, but it's not really a Fantastic Four story. Yeah. It's 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 basically a fake biography of the people that inspired the Fantastic yeah. Four comic. Yeah. It's uh the yeah, it's it's the individuals that it's or like the way I kind of look at it is just like what if they were just kind of if they weren't superheroes but you know they just had all these same flaws that they normally that they had in the comics like way back starting out like you know Mr. Fantastic is essentially an egomaniac and um Sue just has to deal with a lot of issues just being of her gender in a period where you know she doesn't have the range in motion to fully express herself. Yeah. You know? Johnny's just a rebellious teenage punk. Yeah. Causing trouble. Yeah. Funny thing is, is the the premise of this comic, each of the issues had some back matter. And if you have the trade paperback, uh, unfortunately, I think these comics might be tough to find because I don't think the trade's readily in print. But you yeah. should be able to find it online or something. It's definitely a gem <laughs> yeah but there's there's a lot of uh additional back matter that's written uh by james Sturm because so he basically writes this premise where uh he was doing some research into his own uh family tree right and his name is Sturm, and he discovered that uh the people he had some relatives who were the people that uh stan lee and jack kirby based johnny and sue storm on because of their similar last names. So he, he kind of plays plays it like that, where you think, oh, th- this is a... Uh, they're based on... The Fantastic Four are based on real people, and two of mm. those people are the author's uh, relatives or, or cousins or something. Mm. They're, they're related to him somehow. I mean, obviously, it's, it's all it's all fake, but at, at the time, yeah. like, we didn't really know that. Yeah. It was like, oh, is that for real? Is Are these real people? It's, it's an interesting... Like, I don't like using the term gimmick, but it is, I mean, call a spade a spade, right? But, um, I think it's a gimmick with a purpose in the sense that it adds sort of just more story, Yeah, it's a story outside of the story. Yeah. Um, do you have anything to say about, well, okay, so are we done with the, uh, the kind of just the backstory of the book and... Yeah, you know, so what it's about. That, that's the basic backstory. Uh, yeah. We'll give you a, a quick synopsis of the of the comic. The uh, story takes place in the late 1950s, so sort of a the hipster beat era. Yeah, it's kind of would watershed moment be the word? Yeah, or I think just, so. It, yeah, it's, it's a it's a watershed moment in history, right? Just American kind of history in American least, yeah. history. Um, kind of like a Jack Kerouac sort of thing. Yeah, like. It's, you know, society is just kind of coming to this point where there's a cultural shift going on and you still have a lot of people who are very ingrained in the way things were Mm -hmm. while other people are filled with this sense that there's something more out there and that there's something that they want to aspire to be. Yeah, exactly. Um, And they're pushing against the current of society, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And all of the characters... they. 
So it, being a story that's a fake biography, it takes place in the real world, and yeah. none of these characters have their powers. Yeah. But you have uh, their personalities are. You could see how they correlate with the comic book fantastic, the traditional comic book yeah. Fantastic Four. I mean, they all have their same names and everything. Reed is a detached scientist, and as you said, he's pretty uh, egotistical kind of yeah. guy, right? Basically, <laughs> only, only thinking about himself. Uh, you got Johnny, who's just this reckless teenager who yeah. doesn't care about anybody else besides his own pleasure. Yeah. I, well, I would say that the one thing that's sort of different is about Johnny is in the comics, he was kind of... The powers made him popular and someone to be looked up to. Mm. Whereas here, Johnny isn't that he's he's got like one friend he's got one friend and, and he's bullied yeah and he gets bullied exactly you think so, that's funny yeah bullying's totally funny <laughs> <laughs> what i'm a miserable human being and i get my enjoyment from knowing that other people are even more miserable than i am <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> Don't ever change, Albert. Don't ever change. Uh, so, um, yeah. So, if anything, he's he's a pretty resentful kid, I'd say. Uh, but yeah, rebellious is a good word. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, Sue is this woman who's she dotes on Reed, but you know she she he's too busy on with his work to yeah. really give her his full attention. Yeah, and. Johnny doesn't listen to her. Yeah. And the rest, everybody in the neighborhood basically just kind of tells her that, oh, your job is to maintain a beautiful home and to make sure that your man is well-fed and all this Mm -hmm. sort of stuff. But she's clearly going through some kind of emotional change in herself where she's not satisfied with any of that. The neighbors that she she meets with like they're supposed to be like her circle of friends they're not really her friends they're they they're were not. her mother's friends yeah and they really look down on her they do being of a different generation yeah and it i guess it kind of goes to show even in a world where she's a normal person sue is still invisible yeah oh nice nice that's a nice i don't know if that's a plug or what but i was an english major dude Message! (laughs) Hey guys! Subtext! (laughs) That UC Davis diploma's paying for itself, man. Uh, I like words. (laughs) Words good. (laughs) So what do you think about Ben Grimm? Uh, Ben is kind of... What you would expect... I I don't know. Again, going back to what we were saying earlier, these are all... All these people kind of have the same, I don't know if like psychoses is the word, but it's it's a exaggerated, pushed version of the problems that the real, or not the real, but the Fantastic Four had, you know, mm-hmm. just, um, it, it's just their emotional problems elevated to a point where that's where the drama is coming from. Yeah. Like, in the original Fantastic Four comics, it was all about their... Their space adventures, but they were also... They did have their emotional problems. Ben was resentful of uh, Reed. Reed was a pretty arrogant, egotistical guy. Like, 
there there are some pretty funny things if you look back at those old uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Fantastic Four <laughs> comics where Mr. Fantastic says some pretty sexist stuff. Oh, like, yeah, totally. Like, he'll talk to the Invisible Woman, and, like, I can't really pull anything specific at the moment, but it's a lot of stuff where if I was reading it, I mean, definitely, if I'm reading it today, I... I would. It, it makes me chuckle, but at the same time, there there is a part of me where it's like, man, I can't believe that this is how they thought. <laughs> you know, he'd he'd say something to Sue like, you know, take control of your womanly emotions. I can't have you <laughs> mucking this stuff up because you know you can't control yourself because of your hormones or something like that. You know. Um, but in, in regards to Ben, like, uh, the exaggeration of his, uh, personality is that he's this guy who's a bruiser, and he's, a uh, womanizer, and, uh, I don't know, it, it doesn't necessarily feel like he knows what love is, but he, he constantly goes in there thinking mm-hmm. he does, and I, I guess it's just a testament to how headstrong and reckless he is. Yeah, and yeah. I think one of the things that this book does <clears throat> this book does really well is how even all even though these characters all have these deep flaws, they're still relatable on some level mm. and they're still you may not agree with all of the decisions that they make, but you can appreciate and understand why they made those decisions. Yeah. And you don't necessarily hate any of them for doing what they did. Yeah. Uh even if you don't agree with them or support them in their choices. And I think that just shows uh, the layers of complexity and depth that Sturm gave uh, the characters as he wrote the story. It's a really human story. Uh, It's like I said, it's it's the Fantastic Four with the sci-fi stripped away, and it's really just about their interactions with one another Mm -hmm. and uh, just how they cope with the world around them. Yeah. Yeah. So... Albert, what do you have to say about the craft of this comic? Uh, I think the art's really nice. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> it's that's maybe an oversimplification, but um, like you were saying, it's not traditional comic book art in the sense that... Um, superhero art. Superhero art, exactly. In the sense that it's focused around guys with muscles or explosions or spaceships or whatever. Uh, it's... The thing about a story like this is it really takes a lot of talent in order to... Since a lot of the story is talking heads, essentially, Mm -hmm. where it's just people having discussions, that's a harder kind of story to tell a lot of the times. So it really does feel like in order to keep the reader engaged, it really takes a talented artist who knows how to keep that flow going from Mm -hmm. panel to panel just so that you don't feel like all you're looking at is talking heads. Yeah. Yeah. What What about you? Yeah, starting with... first, going to start talking about the art. I definitely want to talk about Guy Davis, because he's one of my absolute favorite artists. Uh, like I said earlier, he drew Sandman Mystery Theater, which that was a comic that was set in the 1940s, like the early 40s. And, he's, and one of, some of his other earlier comics... He did an indie comic called Baker Street, which was a kind of a steampunk uh, reimagined uh, version of uh, the Victorian era. So he's a guy who's known for drawing period pieces. Mm. He, I think in more recent times, he, he's done some BPRD. 
but he really made his name back throughout the 90s and early 2000s doing period pieces. And I, I was reading, I remember reading an interview with him one time and he talked about how he doesn't use photo reference. He just draws from his imagination. But when you look at all the things that he draws, the settings, the architecture, he really captures a sense of place and time. Mm -hmm. And not too many people do that without using photo reference. I mean, he's not drawing fantastical elements and imaginative settings. He's drawing the real world the way it was back in the 40s yeah. or the 50s or whatever period of time that the comic takes place in. This comic takes place in the 50s and everybody's, their fashion, their the houses and the neighborhoods that they live in. Yeah. You really get a sense of time and place. Yeah. The thing that I think is kind of interesting just flipping through this is, again, back to the idea of it's hard to tell a story where so much of it takes place in the real world, especially since comics is such a visual medium. Mm -hmm. But he does really just keep it interesting, like just in terms of the figures and, you know, the, the storytelling from panel to panel. It's the other thing that I, I feel that's worth mentioning is we, we did discuss um, off off mic the the colors uh, palette of this comic and it's it's got a really bright color palette it's all it's i i can't describe it in any other way except pastel yeah but it's it's almost like easter colors if you're just looking at them yeah. like lots of bright pinks and um bright greens and light blues and it's it's There's a lot of light blue yeah and it's it's kind of pleasant to look at but the interesting thing about it is how it contrasts to just the dark matter of or the dark nature of the story you know yeah yeah like i i think that's an a really interesting use of colors to contrast just like i i don't know maybe i'm, I'm getting a little pretentious in terms of how uh, i view it but it really does feel like if this was a time period that was considered kind of just the golden age of america Mm -hmm. You know, this was a period after we had just won World War II and everybody was really happy and, you know, the people at the top of that food chain really didn't have anything to complain about and they were just kind of reveling in their success as a superpower and, yeah. you know, and all this money that was coming in now that they've, you know, come back from the war and everyone's got jobs. But, so it feels to me like the color palette of that mirrors that attitude, but at the same time, the fact that just like in history, there when when that happened, there was a counterculture movement eventually. I mean, mm -hmm. the beatniks did come out of that era, and there was um, this sense of just social unrest as, you know, people who lived in society were pushing back against it, saying, you know what, life isn't really actually all that great for everybody. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. only good for you if you're at the top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this story is about a lot of... Uh other than Reed, everybody's a pretty normal pr type of pr average person, you know? Yeah. And speaking of uh, the darkness of the story that you mentioned, like one thing that kind of stands out in terms of the artwork and how it's uh, drawn and colored, you mentioned the, the color palette and, and how it's a lot of pastels and that sort of shading. Uh, just flipping through it, I, what, I, what stands out to me is that you don't see very many gradients of color you just see a lot of solid blocks of color but when you look at the actual figures and even uh 
architecture in, in the in the art there's a lot of depth to it because of the inking mm. i think i believe guy davis inked it himself and and his inking is what gives a lot of depth and and shading and texture to the art gives it that it doesn't look flat you know even though the colors yeah. themselves tend to be flat the the art itself overall is three-dimensional mm. and it, it gives a, a really nice sense of of depth to it yeah yeah like there's there's a couple panels here and there where it looks like there might have been some uh i don't know if they're computer effects but like the way that some some of the lighting effects and shadows look uh so it's used a, a few times here and there but like for the most part this is a pretty straightforward looking uh comic in terms of color palette and and textures i also liked how there's a comic within the comic mm. one of the subplots of the story is johnny one of the, he tries to escape from the life that he has by reading comics and he reads this comic called vapor girl vapor girl is a superhero sort of comic or a superhero science kind of comic and that those those sequences are illustrated by Arsa Koryak, who's also a well-known uh, indie creator. He's known for stuff like Masterpiece Comics. Uh, and, well, that's the only one that comes to my mind at this moment, but you can look him up. But he draws, when you see that comic, it's, it's drawn in that old school, almost kind of like an Archie style. Like mm. if Archie had uh, space ray guns and <laughs> things like that. Yeah. And I think that's a cool contrast because... Like those panels are, they're bold. Like they're they really stand out in yeah. contrast to the mundane world that he actually inhabits. Yeah. Yeah, and um, just in terms of the figures, I I do like what you said earlier about how you know they're the way that he draws bodies. They're they're not super. You know these. They don't live in a world where everybody's a supermodel or yeah. like a bodybuilder or something. These are real people, and uh, I love how expressive all of their faces are. Yeah. Like he does a good job of just conveying emotion through their facial features, you know. And especially for a story that's so much about emotions and internal conflict, that's just all the more important that you're able to do that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the marks of a truly great comics artist is the ability to tell the story without the words yeah i mean obviously words are important because you do need them to convey really specific information but mm. if you were to just look at the the drawings without the text you could still have a basic idea of the general emotion and inflection of the, of yeah. the sequence and a lot of people who draw superhero comics aren't very good at that yeah yeah, like people end up looking kind of stiff or... Yeah, you, like know. you could you could open up an issue of, uh, let's say, for example, uh, a David Finch comic. Like, I, I remember he, he did an X-Men run, an ultimate X-Men run with Bendis. And there was a <laughs> sequence with, I think it was Wolverine and the Black Widow. For some reason, they had like a four-page conversation, and it was just the two of them talking. Mm. But the way that Finch drew it, you would have no idea if <laughs> like, if they were mad at each other or if they were yeah. joking around. 
they just had the same dead, vacant look in their eyes yeah. the entire sequence, and there was no variation in their body language. It, yeah. It's stuff like that. I mean, can David Finch draw a, a giant sentinel shooting lasers, destroying a building? Yeah, he could draw that. Yeah. But can he draw two people standing in a room? Can he draw two people in the middle of a breakup? Yeah. Like, how do you capture that? You know, it's... and oh, He might be able to if one of them shoots lasers from his eyes. <laughs> Maybe if someone's breaking up with a sentinel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me, will you? <laughs> Zap! Destroy. <laughs> Destroy. Do you have uh, anything more to say about the craft of this? Uh, do you want to talk about the writing or the story? Hmm... Well, give me a second while I uh, gather, but do you, do you have anything? I think uh, what I thought about the story, uh, in, or what I covered back in the little intro we gave, mm. uh, kind of encapsulates my thoughts. What I appreciate about the story here is how human it is. Yeah. It's something about... There's something about reading these flawed characters who just feel real. They don't... I may not necessarily appreciate or agree with all their choices. Heck, I, w- I wouldn't want to be most of their friends. Yeah. But, yeah. hey, I'll read all about them. Yeah. You know, there, there's something about their lives that is absolutely fascinating. And the, the whole story takes place over a period of a, f- a few days. And it's a tumultuous period for all of them. Mm. Somehow, it's captivating enough to really draw you in and even though yeah. it's presented as this sort of fake biography you don't really get a whole lot of context for how their lives were before or after this yeah all you really get is this focused specific little chunk of a few days in their entire lives and mm. how their lives all four of them how they all intersected uh and culminated into one big night yeah yeah, I'm pretty impressed by all their character dynamics. It's just, it's a super layered story, very complex, and just, you know, uh, like I mentioned earlier, Mr. Fantastic's just kind of this, kind of your typical Anglo male for uh, for the period who's, you know, who sees himself as, basically he see how he sees himself is an extension of his work, his mm-hmm. his success at work. So that's what he does. He focuses on his work. And Sue, all she wants to do is... she. It just feels like she just wants a real conversation. She yeah. wants to have real connectivity with other human beings. And the man that she's going out with doesn't acknowledge her because he's constantly at work. The kid brother that mm-hmm. uh, lives with them, he's just always angry and resentful and... He doesn't appreciate her. Yeah, he doesn't appreciate her, and nobody really does. And the one person that she does, uh, that does give her any attention, like, it just... Ben. Yeah, is Ben, and it just ends up being this mess. But that's a... That's a lot of just powerful interplay between characters, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know... If... Yeah, I, I think it's it was good to include this in um, in our list of top twenty five uh, Marvel comics, if only because it's a different kind of story. It's not one yeah. that we see. It's not, 
yeah, okay, maybe they're loosely based on what the Fantastic Four are, but it's just such it's just such a powerful people story, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And it's it's yeah, I'm really appreciative of uh, that drama that they're able to bring to it. Yeah, I think that covers the uh, originality of it. You know, we we talked about originality as one of the criteria. Yeah for our selection and this is a unique piece of work it really is it has something to say it it's a very human story granted the characters are based on or inspired by existing characters but other than that it's 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 basically an indie comic masquerading as a marvel comic yeah and i have a feeling that's why it didn't sell too well yeah it's yeah i get it uh your your standard marvel comics buyer wants shootouts and lasers and you know what have you and they they want it intricately tied into the human drama of it all but this is a comic that's pretty devoid of those fantastical elements and Mm -hmm. just sheerly focuses on people Mm -hmm. and um yeah and Again, this goes back to what we were saying earlier. This just came out. This sprung out of an era of Marvel comics where we had had a decade of, you know, fatal attractions and you know. Don't Todd- forget about it. <laughs> Speaking of the Fantastic Four, we had Heroes Reborn. We had Heroes Reborn, which was uh, this story where all of the superheroes died. And, you know, we lived in a world without superheroes, but really, you know... They got transferred to a pocket dimension where yeah. Jim Lee could draw the Fantastic Four. Well, not just Jim Lee, but Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, Wills Portacio. Yeah. And I think Rob, Rob Lie- Liefeld again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Liefeld is drawing Captain America, I yeah. think, right? And, uh... And Wills Portacio was drawing Iron Man. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, yes. Jim Lee was doing the Fantastic Four... And I think Rob Liefeld was doing their version of the Avengers. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but really, it was just a marketing gimmick to, you know, make the main staples of the Marvel Universe go away for a little while, just so you can bring them back and then get money from people who are like, they're back! Yeah. <laughs> we are the heroes that we love are back! <laughs> <laughs> but this, this was definitely a gamble of a different type. And this is a creative gamble. It was a creative gamble, and it, it it hurts to know that it didn't do well financially. Yeah. But, you know, the upside is maybe they didn't make end up making more comics like this, but at least we have this. Yeah. You know? So We have this, and yeah. that's got to be enough. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing else that I can think of in Marvel's yeah. Uver yeah. like this. I think it's fair from there to discuss one of the, our other criteria, which is its impact. Um, like, I think from what we've discussed, it's pretty evident that this wasn't a book that was commercially successful for Marvel. Mm-hmm. So I think this podcast is definitely a good opportunity for us to educate some people. Yeah, man. You know? uplift yeah we want to uplift good comics here exactly and this is one of the greatest (laughs) marvels you'll ever find yeah it's just a matter of tracking it down because i don't think they they've kept it in print yeah uh you know every so often uh i I find the issues in a quarter bin here and there 
I think I actually found a, a full run of all four issues at some point uh, a few months ago. Mm. Gave it gave it to one of my friends. But the trade paperback, uh, I don't think that's in print. But there's a chance you might find it at a yeah. used bookstore. Maybe your store just has it in stock. They never sold it back in 2003. Yeah. No, definitely. It's it's uh, its impact is definitely more on the creative end in terms of um, like if it did affect someone uh you know one of the writers that works that that's currently working today um i i can't say that i yeah. i know yeah. who who it did like uh, but um it's it's definitely it's a blessing that it exists and yeah unfortunately like we were talking about um they never made this they never made a lot of these to begin with, and then on top of that, they never made a hardcover edition of this. Yeah. So, really, if you're gonna go look for it, it is a quest. It is a, an, you know, just you're gonna have to track it down. It's, you, go, it's, you gotta go in the back issue bins or just go online and, and look for it. Yeah. But it's it's definitely worth worth something worth owning. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's it's weird because. <coughs> The guys who made this comic, uh, if if you read indie comics, these are some big names. James mm. Sturm and you know who did the covers, right? Craig Thompson. Oh. The guy who drew yeah. blankets. Yeah, and that guy is kind of an indie like rock and roll star. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, if uh, he's ever done any other covers or interiors for Marvel, uh, speaking of Craig Thompson, but... Yeah, I mean, he he only did the covers for this, but they're good covers. They're, yeah. They're nice covers. His artwork's beautiful. It's evocative. And, like, I, I love the... His just brushes. The, his br- brushes. Exactly. Awesome. His brush strokes. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. Um, yeah. But it's hard to say that this work had any impact on any of their careers. Yeah. If anything, they're still more well-known for their own comics. Exactly. Which... Yeah. But, you know what? It's they, fine. They don't need Marvel. They don't anyway. need Marvel. You know, yeah. they're they're true artisans in the sense that they're happy to do what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, I'm sure they want to make money. If someone gave them a truckload of money, <laughs> they wouldn't turn <laughs> it away. <laughs> but um, you know, they 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 truly believe in the art of comics, and they're doing what they do in uh, in spite of commercial success. <laughs> yeah, and we are blessed. Yeah. Um, for the last criteria, its ability to withstand the test of time, what would you say about that? Well, I know it would withstand the test of time in my mind because, yeah. hey, it's on our list, man. Yeah. It's something that we're going to reread over and over yeah. years down the line. This is something I got this comic, not, I didn't get it when it was coming out, but yeah. I got it, I got the trade right when the trade came out. Yeah. And ever since then, it's something I always flip through. Uh, like I said, I'm a, I'm a huge Guy Davis fan. He's one of my yeah. all-time personal favorite artists. I love his work. I can't really think of too many other Marvel comics he's done besides this. Mm. And it's even though he's not drawing any of the superheroes, I still get a kick out of just flipping through it and looking at his work. Yeah, it's it's pretty from page to page, you know? Yeah. Like, if, if you actually stop and look at it at in detail, it's mm-hmm. it's really pretty. Uh, I, I, I have to make an admission, uh, at this point, um, I didn't read this comic until this list was produced, so, like, so we, we, we had a discussion, and, uh, we felt that it was worth putting on, uh, Drew, Drew, 
um, advocated for it very strongly. So I gave it a chance. I, I read it. And I do feel that it deserves to be on the list. And uh, in regards to its ability to withstand the test test of time, this book, like you said, came out in 2003, and I read it in 2017, and I feel like its dialogue and its writing and its characterizations are as strong and as spot-on now as it could have been in 2003. If anything, um, you know... It's aged better. I, exactly. Imagined, exactly. Yeah. If anything, it's aged better. If anything, as I've progressed as a reader... I've been I I'm now more able to appreciate the subtleties of this comic now than I was in 2003. In yeah. 2003 there's a good chance I would have looked through it and looked for boobies. <laughs> <laughs> Where <are> the boobies? <laughs> That's some impressive honesty. <laughs> I had something I was going to say but you made me forget. <laughs> Uh, oh man, I really can't remember. It's, it's it's gonna bug me now. I'm just I'm just gonna think about you looking for boobies. Yeah, it's uh, my version of Where's Waldo? Where boobies? <laughs> I really did lose my train of thought. You, you got me good, man. Shanka donka to you. Oh, thank you, Shanka donka, Shanka donk. <laughs> do uh, so how do you want to do this? <laughs> Uh, oh man! There's a fracture in space time yeah. as we speak right now. <laughs> That's crazy, man. You, oh. you made me forget. But uh, anyway, <laughs> Fantastic Four: Unstable Molecules definitely a worthy piece of work that you got to check out. Look for it. <laughs> steal it if you have to, because <laughs> this is just it's hunted down. Yeah, hunted down. It is. It's a great, great read. You know. And the crazy thing is that it's it's not even too long. It's only four issues, so it shouldn't be too hard. Yeah. Oh, I, I now I think I remember what I was about to say. I was gonna say that for a uh, in terms of uh, how it withstands the test of time, I think one thing that helps its cause is the fact that it's a period piece. Mm. So the fact that it's rooted in in the late fifties. Yeah. You know that people are supposed to look and talk and act a certain way. Yeah. And I think that really helps as a reader where you can read it any time in the future and mm. not be like, man, this is, this feels dated because that's part of the point. It's a, yeah. it's a fake biography and yeah. it's supposed to... It exists in a very particular moment in time. Um, like we mentioned earlier, this, this is a story that takes place at a watershed moment in, you know, society and history. Mm -hmm. And... I'm not saying that you can't tell these stories of angst at any other period of time, but there is a very specific kind of angst that came with that period in time. Yeah. You know? And um, I think it still resonates with a lot of people because um, that's just kind of the trend of humanity, really. Like, we, 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 we change, we evolve, and um, there, there comes a point in our growth as people where we question ourselves or we look at ourselves with reflection mm -hmm. yeah. and that's a pretty universal theme yeah absolutely. Ul ultimately absolutely. i think what this story says is it may take place in the late 50s but are people today any less messed up than these people yeah yeah that's a good point actually i hadn't considered that <laughs> but that's true 
Yeah, so that is Unstable Molecules coming in at number 12 on our list. Let's move on to number 11. So, Albert, what's number 11? Number 11 is actually a pretty deep, long run that was done by uh, Ed Brubaker. It's uh, his Captain America. Yep. And um, I don't know... I'm, I'm going to presume that a lot of people know this comic just because... If they don't know the specific comic, they they'll know the contents of this comic yeah. because it's a pretty, it was it it had, it, it's pretty well known. They made a movie on it or loosely based on it at yeah. the very least. But yep. we'll get we'll get to that later. Anyways, it's uh, Captain America by Ed Brubaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was when was it made, Drew? So this run came out back, uh, started in early two thousand five. I, I think. Uh, Probably January 2005, mm. and I think he wrote it all the way up through around the middle of 2012. Mm. So it, it was a uh, he it's had a, a long run, massive like run, over a hundred issues for sure. Yeah. But uh, so let let's let's start off by just talking a little bit about the context of uh, when his run came about. So this run came out in the wake of uh, Avengers Disassembled. Mm. Right. Right. So, so this was a period in time where the the main story that was going on in the Avengers was that the team was broken down mm-hmm. and reformed as a new as a more ragtag team of Avengers or that are made up of the big guns of Marvel. Yeah, the yeah, the big guns of Marvel in terms of popularity. Yeah, in not terms of, necessarily exactly. in terms of yeah. Power levels. Yeah. So this was a team of Avengers that had Spider-Man and Wolverine yeah. and, you know... Um, Iron Man, Iron Captain Man. America. Yeah. <laughs> um, do, should we go into... Uh, kind of give an idea of what the book is about? Yeah. 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 So, uh, going back to Avengers Disassembled, uh, just a brief synopsis of that story was basically... There came a day when the Avengers were attacked by a threat from within, which was basically the Scarlet Witch losing control of her powers and her mind. Mm. She destroyed the Avengers, and I don't know. I mean, everybody's got their own opinions on that story. Whatever uh, your thoughts are on it, what ended up happening was exactly what Albert said. The team broke up, and then it became a comic called New Avengers with uh, the characters we mentioned. But the thing about that whole thing is number one that was one of the first really big events that bendis was able to do for for marvel yeah and secondly it was a chance for the uh, avengers to uh reload and it was because of that really that the avengers are so popular today like the avengers had never been one of marvel's top selling comics mm. They had fallen on pretty uh, indifferent times in terms of uh, readership yeah. and sales, but Avengers Assembled and and New Avengers, those became really high sellers, mm. reinvigorated the entire Avengers franchise, and yeah. that's probably a big reason why, even today, the Avengers are a brand. Yeah, I mean, and the movies, of course. Yeah, but at the time, uh, the third thing that came about as a because of uh, Disassembled was the fact that all of these ancillary Avengers titles from Iron Man, Captain America, uh, Thor, mm. they all 
ended as well. Yeah. They yeah. all ended at around the same time. Uh, and it gave a chance to have a, to a fresh them. start. Yeah, yeah. A fresh start for, for everybody. And Iron Man and Captain America in particular got some really excellent fresh starts. Yeah. With Captain America, this was Brubaker's... Uh, he... It wasn't. I don't think it was his first work for Marvel because I think he might have started Daredevil right around this time. I okay. can't. I can't remember which one came first. Uh, but he had, he had a, a long run on Daredevil, but it wasn't as long as his no, run on no, Captain nowhere America. Near as long. Cap, yeah. his run on Cap went over a hundred issues. Yeah, and and his Cap Captain America starts. Uh, in the wake of Avengers Disassembled, where you have Cap, Steve Rogers, mm. he's at a low point in life. The Avengers have broken up. Uh, he's basically lost his his uh, his reason. <laughs> kind of. I mean, yeah. he, it's not one of those things where he has to, you know, disown the suit and ride on a motorcycle and try to discover America again. Yeah. But he's clearly in a. But a lot of Pretty, bad things have happened to him, and yeah, he's, he's just lost kind of... Friend, some of his friends have died. Yeah, and he's just kind of... <sighs> he's angry. Yeah, he's angry and frustrated. Yeah, yeah. he's angry and frustrated, and that's how that's how Bendis starts this story. You see Cap at his lowest point, and then Red Skull comes back, his greatest enemy. Yeah. And the story basically... Be- it's The first story begins with... The Red Skull trying to revive the Cosmic Cube. Yeah. And there's some flashbacks interspersed here and there. But the big thing is that this is the story that introduced the Winter Soldier. Yeah. It was uh, the Winter Soldier being his longtime kid sidekick from World War II that he thought was long dead. Mm-hmm. And um, for the longest time in Marvel Comics, there were only a handful of people that remained dead. And Bucky Barnes was considered one of the sacred cows yeah, of dead people. Exactly. Uh, like I, I admit, comics is uh, it, comics is a weird uh, industry in the sense <laughs> that you know we're constantly telling stories about people that die and people that come back, and um, it's it's risky because a lot of the times when you bring people back, if it's not done right, um, you end up kind of trashing a lot of things a lot of um yeah a lot of history like you said it, it's sacred mm-hmm. to some degree so uh brubaker taking on the task and not only that but if you if you bring someone back you also run the risk of looking stupid absolutely <laughs> absolutely it's like you know it we've read a lot of bad yeah. resurrection stories over the years yeah it's hard to tell a story like i get it there are characters that people have love for and uh you know, you want to be able to tell the story of their revival because somebody else killed him and, you know, this is your chance to Bring work him with them. But some there are instances where you just shouldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> just don't. Like, yeah, because um, at this time, he was one of the sacred cows, Bucky. And, and he'd then, been dead for, like, decades at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't think, you know, that whole story that's, that everybody knows where he he and Cap are on that plane and then they have to jump off because there's a bomb and Bucky can't get off the plane. Yeah. I don't think that was in any of the original 40s comics. I, I want to say that was a retcon that Stan Lee in, in, uh, wrote when he brought back Cap in Avengers back in the 60s. Mm. 
But, yeah, ever since the 60s, basically, we could say that Bucky had been dead. Yeah, he was, uh... He was one of the you know lost soldiers. Yeah. Like what his his death was a huge milestone in Steve Rogers' history. In that that was kind of his one big failure. He he had to live with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So Brubaker bringing him back in his very first story arc was uh, that's pretty ballsy. It's really ballsy. For a, a guy whose first time writing the character is to do something like that. It takes a lot of confidence in himself and a lot of... I'm sure his editor had to be pretty confident in him too. Yeah. To tell this story. Yeah. And I can... I can just... I, I can imagine a scenario where a bunch of just cynical comics readers would look at that and they would just roll their eyes and just be like, ugh, they're bringing him back to life. What's next, Uncle Ben? Exactly. Have they no shame? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Brubaker's... Well, I guess this is where we can get into the craft a little bit. Yeah. But Brubaker's talent as a writer, he he plays it pretty serious and he, he builds it up over, what, 12 issues? Yeah, like, just about. Yeah, like he, he initially introduces it as a mystery and... Yeah, you know he hints that it could be Bucky, but if it is, like, what, how? Yeah, you know exactly. And yeah. I think that was one of the great things about how he he brought back Bucky. He didn't just bring him back in the first issue, <coughs> and you as a reader, you weren't just like, oh, Bucky's back. But he introduced a character named the Winter Soldier, and mm. I remember reading this as it was coming out. At the time, there wasn't anything that made me associate the Winter Soldier with Bucky. Yeah. And it wasn't until the story progressed that I was thinking, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Is he really doing that? Yeah. What? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And then once you start to figure out, oh, it, what it is Bucky, you know, you got Sharon Carter telling Steve that, that she saw him and it's Bucky. Mm. And Steve's rea Steve Rogers reaction is to, is just shock and disbelief. And, as a reader, my sh I was shocked a lot right alongside yeah. him. Like, I, is she, she? I was just thinking, oh, she's got to be mistaken, or it's a trick. Yeah. How could that be? Like, why is he? If he's the Winter Soldier, why is he? Uh, he doesn't look like Bucky anymore. I mean, no, not at all. He's he's, he's grown up a bit, and the Winter Soldier has a a metal arm. Yeah. And what? Why would he be working for the for the Soviets or yeah, whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the Red Skull. Um, so there was a lot going on. This yeah. Brubaker writes the whole story yeah. as an espionage tale. Exactly. And I think that's, again, that's just a testament to his strengths. Um, so for those of you listening who don't necessarily know too much about Brubaker's background, he's a big indie guy, but he mm -hmm. came from uh, a lot of... For the most part, as far as I know, most of his storytelling tends to be in the realm of crime or um just more hard tack sort of storytelling so that yeah. that would include like espionage and like spy, spy stuff spy thrillers yeah. exactly we, we kind of talked about him a bit when we were talking about criminal right 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 back and this uh yeah he loves that sort of pulp fiction yeah pulp writing and for him to apply that to captain america it's it's kind of one of those things where you you as a reader go, man, 
Why didn't I ever think of that? Yeah. Why didn't I ever think to write Captain America as a spy epic, yeah. essentially? And for him to... Again, uh, Baker's task here is to bring back a character that's long dead. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he is bringing someone back from the dead. So if he doesn't do this in a way that's serious and earnest to, on some degree and makes sense and makes sense there's a very very high likelihood that it just comes off looking stupid mm-hmm. right so for brubaker to go into this and to go okay i have a plan for this large epic and the payoff is going to be the return of this one character who we thought was long dead mm-hmm. and then he's not just back he's he's an antagonist now yeah you know like he plays on all these emotional points to like just rev up the drama and he builds it up so like expertly that it's it's it, there's a reason that this was a story that resonated with so many people and that just gets held with such high regard yeah yeah it's it's a very uh tightly told kind of story yeah and i one of the things that uh also helps it a lot is the artwork. Absolutely. Uh, this opening arc, <coughs> the artist was... Uh, it was primarily Steve Epting, who would go on to be probably the most notable uh, artist on his run. I mean, the run went for 100 issues, so he had a lot of artists throughout. But uh, speaking specifically about the Winter Soldier arc, which was about the first... I think it was uh, f- about 14 issues, but there was an issue here and there that was... a. Uh, I think there was a House of M tie-in at some point that kind of interrupted the flow, but you don't really need to read that. Mm. Uh, but Steve Epting is the artist associated with some of the biggest moments in Brubaker's run. Michael Lark drew a couple of uh, issues here and there to help out, uh, mm. especially with flashback sequences. One of the things that Brubaker did in terms of revamping Bucky as a character and making him... Uh, just helping the reader have a sense of who he was. I think Brubaker did a good job in the flashback sequences showing you that Bucky wasn't just some dumb kid. He wasn't just mm. some silly little sidekick who dressed up as a response to the Hitler youth just to be some propaganda. But he was an actual soldier. Yeah. He was highly trained. He yeah. Was, he was lethal. It's a really cool retcon because it's, it's super subtle. Yeah. But it... it it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because if, if you've been a comic book fan for a really long time and, and you read this when it came out, it was probably something that... It was it was a side of Bucky that you never really thought about too much because yeah. he'd really been looked at as kind of a kid sidekick. Yeah. Sort of a harmless We took it guy. on faith when they described him as just this naive kid who was like just content to be Captain America's pal. Yeah. Yeah. But the way Brubaker writes it, Bucky is highly trained soldier you see him fighting alongside cap and and other allied soldiers during the war where he's he's crawling underneath uh barbed wire in the snow he's he's got a knife combat knife yeah in between his teeth and he's crawling in the snow walking up behind an enemy soldier and just slicing the dude's neck yeah this is a soldier man yeah from what i remember the retcon was that they aged him up a little bit yeah like he looked young so they passed him as the kid sidekick because for propaganda purposes, yeah. essentially, that they wanted him to be able to rally kids to the mm-hmm. cause, but the deep dark secret was he was a, exactly like you said he was this highly trained soldier who was actually 
on some level, maybe even more ruthless than yeah. Captain America because he, he was—he was, wasn't the symbol. He was—he was exactly. He was, he was able to do things that Captain America wouldn't do or couldn't be seen doing. <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, back to the topic of the art, I do think that Steve Epting, especially in these first uh, issues, was a perfect complement to what Ed Brubaker was trying to do. Yeah, you know, like it's just—it's a really dark looking book like the the texture of it is very very fleshy and mm-hmm. very um murky well it's not overly murky but it's like the right amount of murky where like if you're gonna tell a story about that takes place that deeply cements steve rogers in real world espionage it requires that sort of superheroic realism that we've mentioned before mm-hmm. in the past and i it it works really well with the moody kind of storytelling that um ed brubaker is trying to tell his the way he draws his people they're they're real you know they yeah. they they have again this it's it's not like what we were talking about with guy davis in the sense that oh they're not all bodybuilders or whatever but like you feel that their bodies here aren't exaggerated they but they are they look better than anybody i've ever seen yeah exactly (laughs) they look better but but they're still realistic exactly i think that's that's what we mean when we say that term superheroic realism yeah because this is a superhero comic everything's bigger and badder and bolder than real life but Mm -hmm. it's all done in a way that's consistent within the internal logic of the universe yeah or specifically the captain america's universe yeah yeah so yeah, Steve Rogers is, you know, he's got the, he's the peak physical specimen, like a perfect specimen of a man. He's got an athletic build, but it's not overly athletic where, he's not the Hulk. <laughs> yeah, he's not drawn like a Rob Liefeld character with yeah. muscles upon muscles and abs within his abs, yeah. inside the abs that are containing his abs, <laughs> you know? And apparently the those abs have a monster energy drink that they're holding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's realistic looking work, but everybody's drawn as the best possible version of yeah. themselves. Yeah, I do think that's that, a good way to put yeah. it. I like that. Yeah. yeah, and I do think that it is uh, dark. Bec- I don't know if it's exactly because of uh steve epting's pencils but the colorist for the series frank darmada Mm. uh yeah i don't know if i would say i really like his art but or his coloring but i would say that i'm so accustomed to seeing his colors in captain america that it's tough for me to imagine anybody else coloring this work yeah his work really added uh to the sense of darkness of this it added of the to the atmosphere yeah you it's know? very atmospheric that's definitely a, that's a good way to, to to phrase it yeah because it is a story where cap is in the dark about bucky and with all this darkness in the panels you know even when he's drawing daytime scenes yeah. there's something in the in the filter where it, yeah. it still feels dark and i don't really know how he does it sometimes when he's yeah. drawing night scenes it does look murky and yeah. I, I don't think i really care for his 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 coloring too much in other comics i've read Mm. but you know what i'm so accustomed to seeing his work in captain america this run yeah it it works for me and it and again like we were uh, like i mentioned earlier this is 
a story that's very heavy on the intrigue and the spy element mm-hmm. of uh, the Marvel Universe. So it is Captain America dealing with a lot of dark, shadowy corners, dealing with a lot of mysteries and yep. secrets and lies. So that that type of coloring works um, to enhance that, that sense of um, the unknown yeah. and just how dark and dangerous his world is so i in that regards it works yeah it's, yeah. Un- it's understandable yeah exactly. you got cap interacting with the shadowy corners of the universe like you were saying yeah. shield you got him interacting with nick fury and agent 13 you know sharon carter mm. he's fighting people like crossbones and the red skull and yeah and these are battles that aren't kind of they aren't they are not like the battles of the 90s where he's just running around and it's massive uh fist fight where you see splash page after splash yeah, page but yeah. these are really well choreographed battles where there's real violence yeah real weight between each blow that's that's behind each blow that's thrown and you see it in in the drawings it's really well done mm. what's uh what would you say about the What's the next one? Impact? You want to talk about the impact? Yeah, let's talk about the impact of this because I th- I think it's hard mm-hmm. to uh, discuss this comic without talking just how much... How much of it really, I guess, permeated just, you know, public consciousness. Yeah. You know, Espe- I mean, granted, a lot of it is was done... Um, through Disney and their marketing and, you know, they, they made that decision to, mm-hmm. to do this, but, um, I, I still think, uh, even the movie that came out w- that bears the same name, the winter soldier, like even out of all the Marvel movies, that one holds pretty high regard. Like, yeah. That's yeah. definitely one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's a different type of story. Definitely. But, uh, go ahead. You, you were saying, Oh yeah, it's it's wild, man. Because who would have thought back when this comic first came out in two thousand five that nine or ten years later there would be a movie called The Winter Soldier? Exactly. <laughs> who exactly. would have thought that? It it was a huge. It left a big impact on multiple levels in the Marvel universe in the sense that one, like you said, they made a movie based on this specific story, and um, we were discussing off mic, but like how many. St- stories or story arcs can your average person name Mm -hmm. like i'm i I can't say for sure that uh your average person would still be able to say oh i know the winter soldier now but um i i definitely have a feeling it's more than uh than not yeah you know there's um yeah um in addition to that uh it also impacted the comics industry in a big way in the sense that I do think that Brubaker's career, like, kind of went supernova after this, yeah, you know? his star totally shot up. Yeah. I think it it's thanks to his cap run and some of his other Marvel work that he was able to... Like, we were talking about that when we discussed Criminal, but yeah. he was able to use his success as a Marvel writer to boost his career yeah. as a writer of his own comics. Yeah. He, yeah, he can basically take his name now, and mm-hmm. he's tied to the Winter Soldier specifically. Yeah. I liked how they even gave him a cameo in the movie. Yeah. That was nice. a nice uh, salute to him. Yeah. 
Another thing that uh, made a big impact was just the fact that how Bucky is now a major character in the Marvel Universe. Ever since this, ever since they brought him back as the Winter Soldier, yeah, he's been a part of their universe. Yeah, other writers are constantly using him in their stories. They're featuring him you, in his own titles. Yeah. Yeah, like that is a big feat for anyone yeah. to like people are constantly creating new characters in the Marvel universe because so that's just the business. Forgotten. Yeah. Like, uh, like how many of you know cardiac, huh? <laughs> <laughs> or cardiacs, <laughs> his arch nemesis, nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's dangerous because it's not cardiac with an AC. It's cardiacs with an AXE at the end of his name. So there's a weapon in his name. He's got to be deadly. <laughs> you just got to change everybody's name so they have axe after their names to make it more yeah, extreme. Like, exactly. Like uh, Wolverax. Yeah. Ghost Rider Axe. <laughs> Galactax. <laughs> How about Terax Axe? <laughs> Spider-Man Axe. <laughs> Spider-Max. <laughs> Spider-Max Axe Axe. Jessica there are three axe axes in those. <laughs> I was going to say Jessica Jones Axe. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like, but for someone to create something that, um, and this, I guess this ties into, uh, the, the ability of this story to withstand the test of time to some degree, mm -hmm. but for someone to create a character that becomes a permanent mainstay in the Marvel universe this many years out. That's an accomplishment. That is an accomplishment, accomplishment. That's super impressive. You know, like most people don't, you know, don't get ever get that lucky to work on a comic book let alone create something that you know years down the line will be remembered forever yeah yeah and you know what the nice thing is too is is that i'm pretty sure i've never really looked into brubaker's thoughts on this in any interviews or anything but if i had to guess i would guess that he feels pretty happy about the winter soldier because this is a character Technically, he created the Winter Soldier, right? But on another level, he never would have owned this character anyway because yeah. it's based on Bucky. Yeah. So he he really didn't lose out on anything. Yeah. This this was a, something that he created without, you know. Sometimes people talk about how oh, if you work for for Marvel or DC, you should probably save all your best creations for yourself. Mm. But this was something where he didn't need to do that because the creation was already there, and he just added to. The existing the mythos. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, you think about some of the other characters that might have come out around this time, like Gravity, right? Nobody really thinks about <laughs> Gravity too much. I didn't until you mentioned them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't even aware that they came out at around the same time, but um, apparently. I think it was around the same time. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was the same era. But people might have... People might know who Gravity is. Maybe they'll throw him in the background of a scene somewhere here and there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Winter Soldier, he's been a leading man. He, yeah. He has his, his own had comics. He's several minis... Um, not necessarily miniseries, but several series of his own. Yeah. Like, short run or not, but... Yeah, and he's constantly showing up in yeah. other people's comics. He's yeah. on... He's in team books. He's in yeah. Avengers comics. I think for a while he was in the Thunderbolts. Yeah. Uh, they're, I mean, they're doing all sorts of stuff with him. Nothing that particularly may interest me, necessarily. Yeah. But yeah. it's cool to see that he's still a big, influential character that they're constantly 
involving in their events and yeah. comics. Do you have anything to say about your thoughts on how original this series was or the originality of it all? Uh, well, I think before we really dive into that, we should probably talk about a little bit more about the impact of the comic because yeah. we've only talked about basically like the first 14 issues of this, right? Right, right, right. And the, like the, you said, it was it did go 100 issues. And the other thing that people will remember this run for, uh, and we would be completely remiss if we didn't talk about it for a bit, was the death of Captain America. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, totally. That was another milestone moment that even to this day is kind of a... It's kind of a big moment in Captain America's history. Yeah. Yeah. Back in, I think it was 2007, that was when Issue 25 came out. Issue 25 came out in the wake of Civil War, the comic. And Civil War basically ends with Captain America surrendering surrendering to the authorities. And Brubaker continues uh, that plot thread in Captain America... Mm. By having Steve Rogers being arraigned arranged for uh, a trial. Yeah. While he's being escorted down the courthouse steps, he gets killed by a sniper. Mm. Eventually, it's revealed that it's more complex than that. Yeah. But just to At the moment, keep it simple, yeah. <laughs> he, got, he gets killed by a sniper and yeah. Steve Rogers dies. So <laughs> Captain America dies in his own comic, which yeah. was kind of looked at as a stunt by some people if, if you were more cynical but i think if you had been reading captain america consistently to that point you knew it was just part of a longer story that mm. Brew baker was telling crazy thing is though when captain america died that actually did become a big news story it did it did i remember the the day that the issue came out i hadn't even gone to the comic shop yet but i met up with one of my friends for for a brunch uh and the first thing he said to me was, man, how'd they kill Captain America? And he doesn't even read comics. <laughs> and I was like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, I, I hadn't really watched the news that morning or, or yeah. paid attention to... I don't even think Twitter was a thing back then. So, right. So I, I really didn't know. Yeah. So he kind of spoiled that surprise for me. Yeah. But it, it kind of shows me also how big of an impact that news had because... Yeah. The story of his death was all over the news. I think it was on... It was even mentioned on CNN. Yeah, I saw it on Colbert myself. Yeah, the Colbert Report. Yeah. Uh, newspapers, uh, like the Los Angeles Times had a blurb on it. Mm. It was in Newsweek. A bunch of people, mainstream media outlets, were interviewing Brubaker. Yeah. I heard that he got a lot of calls for a couple weeks just about this story. Because mm. everybody wanted to, to know... What you does know, this mean? Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I, I think a lot of people who aren't super into comics, whenever they think of a, a major character dying to them, it's it seems like a big deal. Like, yeah, think about yeah. Superman back in the 90s when he died. It was a huge, huge deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And kind of the same thing with Captain America, except Captain America came out in an era when comics didn't sell as many comics as they did during the era of the 90s when Superman died. Mm. However, the media attention was probably just as big, if not even bigger. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because... Like, I can't really think of where it was... 
relative to like the release of the movies or, or like I, I can't remember this still came out before Iron Man came out so the movies hadn't come okay. out at all so th- the thing that I was gonna say that interests me is like at the time when Superman uh, when they announced the death of Superman that was a big deal and that sort of made sense because it was like oh it's Superman right mm-hmm. yeah. but to think that Captain America would get this much attention like that that kind of surprised me. I like. Yeah. I never felt like anybody had that much love for Captain America. Yeah, and, and never f- really felt like he was one of the A-listers. Yeah, exactly. Right. In, in fact, in at least in the era of comics that we grew up in, eighties and nineties, none of the Avengers really seemed like A-listers. It was always yeah. about the X-Men, right? Yeah. The X-Men were the popular ones. Like on paper, they talked about them like they were the a-listers yeah they were earth's mightiest heroes but realistically i didn't look at it and go man black knight and cersei <laughs> i'm really glad they're there to protect me <laughs> good thing hercules is here let's see crystal destroy some bad guys <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> uh, or uh what is it uh, war cry or what, <laughs> you know death cry death cry or see nobody even knows who she is <laughs> or quasar Qu- yeah <laughs> uh that's some top tier avenging right there <laughs> uh, everybody's got to wear their brown bomber jacket yeah 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 <laughs> but um yeah i mean the idea that the death of Captain America would make that much news. Like, again, if Superman makes sense. If it was Spider-Man or Wolverine, I, like, I would have put my money on those guys. If, like, yeah. oh, we're going to kill Wolverine, like, the internet or whatever was the internet at the time would have broken. Yeah. <laughs> Funny thing is, a few years ago, they did kill Wolverine. And, and I don't no think one cared. cared. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Which is fine because that was, was a dumb it was, story. It was a dumb story written by a not so great guy. So, well, as a person, I'm sure he's fine, but <laughs> <laughs> as a writer, yes. he wasn't so good. Yes, you, you gotta qualify. We, we don't, you don't want to attack people on our show. Yes, yes. I mean, unless that'll get up our ratings. If we invite oh. someone in here and we just like get in a circle and just beat him mercilessly if that'll raise ratings we'll do that <laughs> earlier you did mention that you are a supporter of bullying i am i'm i feed off misery so we so, just have to look for some easy marks for you then yeah old people definitely want to like i i would get a lot of satisfaction from that kids kids um quadriplegics quadriplegics <laughs> uh baby animals <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, do, do you have any more thoughts on uh, just how big of a story that is? I think in terms of <coughs> impact that the story had, the death of Captain America's story arc in particular, yeah, uh, it. I think the, the big wave was definitely the issue where he died. Mm. And what most people probably expected was, oh, well... He's still going to come back. Steve Rogers isn't really dead. Yeah. I think everybody knew that. Uh, I would hope even the people at the LA Times or CNN knew that. But 
I really don't know what they thought. Yeah, I mean, it's a little harder for me to imagine that just because it's like you said, like the people that don't follow comics. Civilians. So, yeah, uh, c- civilians. For them, I- I'm sure that hearing the death of somebody, in their mind, it feels a lot more permanent, but they ain't in the game. They ain't in the comics game. Yeah. They don't know nothing about comics. <laughs> they don't, man. They really don't. Funny thing is, is going back to what you were saying earlier about how you would have expected other characters to make a bigger splash in the news yeah. if they had died. Uh, right around this time, too, uh, Grant Morrison killed Batman, right? Yeah. And, uh, but nobody really seemed to make a big deal yeah. compared to Captain America. Yeah, which is really weird. Like, uh-huh. I don't know why that was i I you know what i think it was because marvel's pr department did a really good job selling this to the mainstream outlets yeah i think they understood how to get attention Mm. they understood how to kind of take advantage of the the ignorance of the of these civilian news outlets yeah for marvel's own advantage and i think they did it in a way that dc either didn't have the foresight for that or maybe they just didn't uh didn't care yeah but yeah it it's it's pretty uh it's a fascinating case because these two stories came out uh that's true they close were really time. close yeah because yeah. because batman died during final crisis yeah and i think that i think that was 2007 I know, I'm pretty sure it was after the death of Captain America, but, mm-hmm. like, even so, you would think yeah. that they would have learned something from, you know, what good publicity can get you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Marvel definitely did a good job with with, with uh, reaching out to the mainstream media. That's one of the things that another impact that the story had, I think, was just showing Marvel how to do that. Mm. That they had the power to drum up attention for their yeah. comics by reaching out to mainstream news outlets yeah. and eventually they were doing it uh pretty often for things that really didn't necessitate that kind of attention absolutely like it's like they became aware of the power of good publicity more so you know i yeah. mean like i think we're we're all aware of you know what good publicity can get you but like to aggressively use uh the publicity machine yeah. You know, to proactively use it, I guess. Yeah. But um, and eventually you, you do that too much. There even those news outlets are going to learn. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. people are going to learn. People yeah. who consume the news are going to be like, "Oh, it's not really that big a deal." Yeah. That might explain why the death of Wolverine didn't, didn't hit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? A lot of diminishing returns on that. Yeah. Um yeah, the other thing I was going to say is um even now the the um shadow of the death of captain america and like this is purely speculation on my part but i do feel like even that is still kind of in the background of um the stories that they're telling today uh especially in the movies Mm because i do feel like you think cap's gonna die in infinity war i don't know if cap's gonna die but you know after the civil war movie and their introduction of uh, the winter soldier um into their world it's 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 hard to look at that and to look at the role or the expanding role of the winter soldier and not to speculate on the idea 
of, oh, is this going to lead to the, you know, to the natural conclusion, which is the death of Captain America, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, So I do feel like it's, at least for me, it's something that hovers over the movies as they move forward. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And I do want to talk a little bit about uh, the death of Captain America's storyline, too. Mm. Uh, they kill off Captain America, and then they don't bring him back for a couple of years. So the series actually becomes an ensemble story about Bucky, Black Widow, Falcon, Sharon Carter. Mm. This this association of, of allies and friends of Cap who end up having trying to make sense of life without him. Yeah. It's kind of the idea of propping up the idea of Captain America without Captain America. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah. it becomes a, a story that's about the concept and the ideals of Captain America, the mm. symbol, and what that means for the characters in the Marvel Universe. Mm. And I think one of the things that was really effective was how Brubaker used Bucky to... He basically gave him a lot of character development over the course of the run. So by the time Captain America, by the time Steve Rogers dies, you you're really you really are rooting for Bucky to step into the role yeah. as Captain America, which yeah. is what he ends up doing. And Alex Ross designs uh, a new shiny costume for him too. Yeah. And then the story becomes more about Bucky and. Uh, the other characters, Falcon, Sharon, Black Widow, and they're going on all these different uh, quests or adventures to solve the murder of Captain America and figure out what's all this stuff going on in the background because there's a lot of espionage and uh, mind control being played, hypnotism elements from some of the supervillains that are in the background. And it's all still told in this style of a uh, espionage thriller mm. oh yeah tony stark's a big part of it too i mean being the guy who won the civil war he's yeah. a big part of the story as well and you still have elements from earlier in the run like the red skull and crossbones being a a big having a big role in the story yeah the way that brubaker he he was able to take all these characters and and subplots and juggle them and have them coalesce in a way that made sense for everybody's character arc. Mm. That was some really impressive storytelling and writing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I do also like that over over the course of Captain America's history, like very long history, he does uh, tend to build like like any superhero character. They, you know, you build a cast around them, and you build. Um, a rogues gallery around them and Brubaker did a good job of just writing these guys in a new light and you know writing them in a way that took them seriously mm-hmm. and that didn't make them out to be just ridiculous or silly caricatures yeah exactly yeah. you know like um I was I'm a fan of Crossbones as a villain but you know I, I can't honestly say that there were too many series or stories where you know, he was used in a way that anyone cared about. Yeah. You know? And, like, I was just flipping through this book, and that you have the new Captain America, and 
Steve Rogers' friends taking on the Serpent Society. Yeah. Like, who takes on the Serpent Society, <laughs> you know? But, um, yeah, like, that's that's the sign of a um, artful or masterful storyteller is his ability to see these characters and to find his love for them and to be able to write them in a way that you, as the reader, can take seriously. Yeah, and that's that's another thing that Brubaker did throughout his entire run is he takes a lot of characters, uh, a lot of the Rose Gallery f- from all the different eras of Captain America. You yeah. can tell that he did his research reading a lot of back issues and whatnot, or maybe he just remembered the stuff that he read when he was a kid. Mm. But he was taking characters like Dr. Faust, mm. uh, the S- Serpent Society. Uh, Master Man. M- Master Man. Yeah. Even, even really obscure things like, uh, you know, that 1950s version of Captain America, who was actually a, a crazy guy who had yeah, plastic yeah. surgery yeah, to yeah, yeah. look like Steve Rogers. Yeah. Yeah. So you have guys like that in Drew Baker's run. And even if you don't know who any of, the, any of those people are before, when yeah. you read his stories, he gives you enough explanation and context so you do know yeah. what you need to know. Yeah, essentially, it's a Captain. Essentially, Brubaker's hundred issue run on Captain America is. I don't want to say a love letter necessarily, but it it does honor the history of Captain America yeah. throughout it. You know, so he takes that hundred issues to not only build new things, but to give respect to all of the things that had happened in the past, even the stuff that at maybe at the time. Um, at the time of our reading, when we read it, we were like, oh, that was kind of a bad thing that they did in the 50s. That yeah. was kind of ridiculous or that whatever. Was silly. That was silly, exactly. But he found a way to take it and to make you read it and go, okay, that I, I can I can work with that, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. And even even some of the the bigger names, he gives every the characters who appear in the stories throughout the entire run. It's a lot of fun seeing them interact in Captain America's yeah. world, where, where whether it's Falcon or, or Iron Man or, mm. or Namor. Namor has some really good scenes, from what I remember. Yeah, he uses a lot of characters, and it, it's a book that feels firmly planted in the Marvel universe, especially the Marvel universe of the time that these comics were written. But it's not written in a way where it feels bogged down by all these events or extraneous things yeah. that are happening outside of the book. Yeah. It's true. A lot of... I wouldn't say that it's exactly self-contained because, you know, Civil War did happen and it did affect a lot of the storytelling that was happening here. But he does it in a way that is clever enough that it's subtle, you know? He probably had the best Civil War (laughs) tie-in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. You know? And... Like, again, if you're, or not again, but if you're a comics fan and um, you've read or or you're accustomed to the way that comics are pumped out, which means, you know, you're accustomed to reading a story and then getting a tie-in to something, like, those are never, or rarely are they ever done well enough. If anything, they, they're a speed bump. 
yeah. to your reading experience. Yeah. They, they interrupt the story that you yeah. want to read. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? I'm in the middle of finding about, about Spider-Man, and then all of a sudden this thing happens over here, and he has to drop everything he's doing to address whatever is happening in the larger Marvel Universe. Yeah. It's like, I... I who finds that an appealing reading experience, you know? Um, yeah, so... Uh, in terms of impact, like, uh, so so how do you feel? Do you, Is there anything more that you feel needs to be said? Uh, not really. I mean, just to summarize it, this comic had one of the biggest impacts of any mainstream superhero comic of the past 15 20 years absolutely it was it was a huge event yeah yeah it was a true game changer and one of the things that lets you know how big of a game changer this was is the fact that every single writer since brubaker who's written captain america yeah they do not try to imitate the tone of this yeah. comic yeah, that that's a really good point, actually. Like, it really feels like... They've all gone in a completely different direction with a different tone and feel because yeah. I think everybody understands, you know, we're not going to be able to touch this. We're just going to go do our own thing. Yeah. Like, you had Rick Rick uh, Remender <laughs> take Captain America into another dimension. He made him... Fant- he brought back the more fantastical elements of Captain America. Yeah, adventures. it was kind of like a yeah. Silver Age throwback, yeah. in a yeah. way. And then you got... Who else wrote Spencer? Oh yeah, Nick Spencer. He he turned uh, Captain America into a Nazi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a pretty different direction. Yeah. And then you more recently you have Wade, who just kind of took him back to his roots, or at least I haven't read it, but from the looks of what I've seen, that seems to be what they want to do. Yeah, like yeah. you know, Steve Rogers is back, and you know he's he's a swashbuck swashbuckling adventurer again. Yeah. You know, so. I mean, that totally makes sense because um, it really feels like whether it's because they they give homage to um, Ed Brubaker or whether it's just good business practice to kind of rotate the kind of stories that you tell with Captain America Mm -hmm. because you don't want the same kind of Captain America for too long you know you you have to he's he's a versatile character and uh, you have to be able to flesh out all of the different things that make him great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think even I think even Brubaker himself realized that towards the end of his run. Yeah. Because uh, at the end of this volume of Captain America, because when he started Captain America, it started he started with a new number one. Mm. Then eventually they went to a renumbering around issue 600 because it was a milestone. Yeah. You know, it gets confusing. But that's how comics are, folks. Yeah. After that... After some time, I forget what was the last issue, but he ended up. Re- they ended up relaunching uh, Captain America with a new number one again, <laughs> back in right. I don't know maybe 2010, mm. somewhere around there. And I think by that time, by the time that relaunch came about, uh, the stories had a, a decidedly different tone. He kind of moved away from the uh, espionage thriller elements mm. and moved it back towards more traditional superhero mm. kind of stories. Which was fine. It was still entertaining and enjoyable. I think his the very last issue he ever wrote of Captain America was a really touching send off about his thoughts on the character and and the brand Captain America. Mm. Uh, but you know what? Not every story has to 
have the impact of a death of Captain America or yeah, yeah, Soldier, absolutely not. You know, he told those stories. He wrote something that was so long, but it was over a hundred issues. And I, th- I still think the entire run is worth reading, mm. uh, because the the bulk of it is so strong. He he was given love to all sorts of forgotten villains. Mm. Obviously, there's the ones that people will never forget, like Red Skull and uh, Baron Zemo mm. had a story. But he he was also bringing back characters like Doctor Faust, Master Man. Uh, Did he do a Batroc the Leper? Batroc was Batroc yeah. the Leaper was in it. Yeah. Uh, there was there's someone else. Oh, Baron Blood. Baron Blood. You know, the, the vampires. vampires. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he did World War Two stories. Yeah. He did stories. Uh, yeah, that basically covered every era of Captain America. And made you, f- if you never read any Captain America before, but this was the only Captain America you read, that's all you need. Mm, mm. I think it's fair to say this is the definitive run of Captain America. Mm. Cool. Yeah, that that's really true. Like, and it's a well-built run. You know, it's like you said, a hundred issues of just solid storytelling, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts on originality or? think in terms of originality the execution is what makes it original because yeah it's i don't know if anyone would really consider bringing back a dead character or killing the character to be original yeah but i do think that killing the main character and continuing the story for a couple of years yeah and making it a story about that character's friends that's that's, that's creative yeah you don't see that that's a really good point like um They've done hundreds of stories, or not hundreds, but they've done a bunch of stories where people die, people come back, and it becomes meaningless, and you're right, the originality ultimately comes from the execution of how the story is told, right? Yeah. Because, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Think back to the death of Superman. Yeah. The aftermath of that was Reign of the Superman, where you had these four Superman-like characters... And the mystery, the gimmick Mm. was one of these guys is going to be the real Superman. Yeah. But you don't know which one yet. And that was a gimmick to try and draw the readers, you know, back in every month. Mm. But this doesn't, Captain America, Brubaker's run doesn't use any gimmicks like that. It's just solid storytelling. There's no real, he's not trying to trick you or draw you in with with a cheap gimmick where he's saying, oh, don't you want to see, don't you want to guess which one of these characters is going to be the yeah. next Captain America? Because I think anyone who's actually reading it knows there's only one person who can be Captain America if it's not Steve Rogers at yeah. this point. Yeah. And you're right. It's, um... You can tell that he just... he Like, the death of Captain America in and of itself is a gimmick. That might be true. But at the same time, he's just focused on telling a good story around it. Yeah. You know, as opposed to... Oh, what what's the hook that we can use yeah. to try to get these people to, you know, just shell out more money for for everything? So is Captain America a cyborg now, <laughs> or you know, is he a ghost that haunts his shield and helps his buddy out on mysteries? You know, it's although I would kind of want to read that <laughs> Steve Rogers as a disembodied ghost that haunts his shield. And helps out whoever holds the shield. And they go around the country solving mysteries. Dude. 
That sounds like a fun Scooby-Doo-ish kind of... Yeah, that's my take on Captain America. <laughs> Call me, Marvel. Haunted Shield. Haunted Shield. The ghost of Captain America. Dude, Marvel's got to hire you, man. Marvel, call me. <laughs> um, do you, what do you think about how well this run will stand the test, withstand the test of time? I think in terms of how we scored it, or like when we were looking at the different uh, criteria for what makes this book. Uh, worthy or why we would include this book on our list of the top 25 marvels of all time i do think that its ability to withstand the test of time is pretty high it's it's a pretty um high up there uh if if anything it's it's just it's just such a tightly well done story um about captain america and what captain america is about and um it's just you know, it, it covers all these different themes of, um, you know, the, the the essence and the idea of what Captain America is. But then at the same time, it also tells this really strong spy thriller story. Mm-hmm. And like you said, um, it's such a long story that um, covers so much of Captain America's history and all the different aspects of Captain America. Uh, and it's Brubaker adding uh, his own... Um, his own special bent on what Captain America is about, you know, by, mm-hmm. by adding that element of Captain America as, uh, the, as essentially, you know, Jack, um, what's his name? Born, Jason Born from the Born Identities, you know, it's, it's basically a Captain America mixed with, a with Jason Born or something like that. Right. But when I, I think you summed it up, best when you said that this is essentially this is kind of the quintessential captain de- definitive captain america story yeah. like it it's a hundred issues of uh just consistent storytelling and uh and although the artists may have different uh differed from uh time to time i would say that they were all they all kind of inha- inhabited similar a similar headspace, and they complemented each other well. Yeah, and complemented Brubaker well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all of the artists pretty much drew in that super heroic realism style. Yeah, it wasn't until the uh, the relaunch with the new number one towards the end when I think the art started to look a little different. Mm. But I think that kind of fit the tone of that book too, because like I said, that book was more of a straightforward superhero story again yeah where he was fighting supervillains in a really straightforward manner there wasn't really an espionage thriller element to it yeah and i think the superhero traditional looking superheroic art fit the tone of those stories as well yeah i think like alan davis drew some of that oh and he's nice. a good artist he's an know? awesome yeah, artist he's an awesome artist yeah so it was kind of stuff in that sort of style yeah and it it, it was it was still good yeah. Yeah, it was enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't don't skip out on that just because it's not as great as yeah. the rest of his run. Yeah. And don't be one of those readers who's like it's only good if it's gritty or dark yeah. or whatever like you know Captain America he he's many things. Yeah, there's many yeah. things, man. Yeah. He's multiple flavors. Yeah. Exactly. Like if you love Captain America then, you know, accept his entire history. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
and with the uh, with Captain America in in the movies now, you could tell that these books are obvious influence, mm. big yeah. influence on how he's portrayed the his heroism and and the yeah. level of self sacrifice that that the movies convey. It's all rooted thematically in very very similar tone as Brubaker's run. Yeah. I mean, Winter Soldier, man. Yeah. The movie. One of the things that... Oh, one of the things in that movie that I also appreciated, besides the actual cameo that Brubaker had, they had a, a scene that actually directly uh, was quoted... Directly quoted uh, a sequence in the book mm. when, in the movie, Cap sees Bucky for the first time. And just like the first time he sees Bucky in the comics, he, he kind of looks at him and squints and he's... Not sure if it's what Bucky he's or not. Yeah. yeah, and he's just like, he just says, Bucky? And then the Winter Soldier stares at him, and it's a really meaningful pause while he's reloading his gun. And Winter Soldier just stares at him and says, Who the hell is Bucky? Yeah. Like, when yeah. I saw that in the movie, I was like, Wow. That yeah. was one of the classic moments from the comic, and I'm glad that they included it in yeah. the movie. It is totally a classic moment. It's iconic, man. Yeah. It's totally iconic. Hmm. Okay. This is a comic that's going to withstand the test of time. Yeah. This is... If, if you're looking for a definitive Captain America story, this is the one. Yep. Yeah. Except no substitutes. Yep, yep, yep. So anything else you want to say before we wrap things up? Um... Shankadanka? Shankadanka. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Alright, folks. This is Between the Gutters. Thanks for listening. You can always leave a comment or email us at Between the Gutters Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. Please. Yeah. We're lonely. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> I haven't seen or interacted with another human being other than Albert. Yeah. And likewise, I just, I just crave attention. This is getting tough. I yeah. Can, I gotta turn this <laughs> off before it gets too real. There we go. <laughs>